Cap Impact Podcast receives funding from the Solano County Water Agency. At the Solano County Water Agency, we do far more than supply 400,000 residents with clean and reliable water. We're a regional leader, coordinating and supporting programs for responsible groundwater, flood, and regional water management. Learn more at www.scwa2.com. podcast by the Capital Center for Law and Policy at University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. Today we are talking about AB 638 with two of the lobbyists that worked on killing the bill, Lexi Howard and Aaron Ryberg. Lexi, Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, John. So this bill would have, just kind of long story short, would have more or less outlawed the immigration consultant industry in California. So Lexi, I want to start with you just to get some background here. What is an immigration consultant? It's a great question because they don't exist in all states. California is among 14 states that have specific provisions allowing for immigration consultants. They are non-legal people who provide help to immigrants who are lawfully here and need help establishing that. And they do things like translating forms and helping fill in forms. Typically, people who need those forms go to the website for customs and immigration, and they look up what they need. But those forms, many of them, are very long and very complex. One form that's commonly used, for instance, is 18 pages long with 42 pages of instructions, all in English. So if you are not a native English speaker, that is a daunting task. And the immigration consultant helps with the translation, the filling in of and the, hey, you need these other supporting documents that are asked for on this form type of help. Okay, so you said they're non-legal help that they provide. And I know you mentioned filling out forms, finding support documents, some translating. Since they, is that kind of like just the length of what they're able to do since they're not able to give legal advice to perform legal services? It's very clear in statute in California that an immigration consultant cannot provide legal advice. There is, however, interplay between attorneys and immigration consultants, and there are times when those work together to meet the needs of a client. So California statute provides specific things that an immigration consultant can and can't do, and it is very clear that they can't provide legal advice. What's not so clear is if choosing a form is a form of legal advice. Gotcha. So I think we'll get into some of the issues that exist with the industry in a little bit here. What other regulations exist around this industry in California? So there are a variety of regulations in for immigration consultants specifically. Mm. They have to register with the Secretary of State. Part of that includes a complete background check, and they also have to obtain a $100,000 bond to protect the public. There are also requirements on advertising, contracts, how they hold themselves out, specific prohibitions if they are also notary publics, and otherwise. They said that this isn't a major industry. California is one of 14 states. Is it mostly like in border states where this industry exists? No, surprisingly, it exists in uh, other states like Utah, Oklahoma, so not always border states. And um, in California, though, there are about a thousand of these businesses little more, and they employ about four to 5,000 people. So while not a 
big industry, it's a significant one because it meets the needs of people in their communities where they might not otherwise be able to get these services and certainly where they may not be able to afford the cost of an attorney. How do the laws or regulations that California has for the immigration consultant industry here compare to laws and regulations in other states? I know you mentioned like Utah, Oklahoma. Maybe those aren't the best examples because they like to regulate less than California generally. But what about some of the other states where this industry is? A variety of of permutations on things. Uh, Some require bonds, some don't. Some require background checks, some don't. Other, there are a handful of states that specify maximum fees there per hour or per page or that sort of thing. California does not do that. So they are similar in some ways, different in others, and of course the majority of states have no specific provisions that either allow for or prohibit immigration consultants. Okay, and then I think this kind of is the last bit of background here. You mentioned that there's kind of this interplay between the consultants and Uh, immigration attorneys. How does this profession kind of fit into the whole legal ecosystem in the immigration world? There really is a robust ecosystem. Immigration consultants know their limits, know when they're speaking to a client who, for instance, comes to them and says, I'm seeking asylum, or I need help with something that involves criminal matters. Immigration consultants generally recognize that that is a matter that requires an attorney and they have a network of attorneys that they refer to. And that's, that works the other way as well. So attorneys will meet with someone who needs their services or an immigration consultant services. They'll screen them. They may determine that what the person needs is help filling out forms and doesn't need specifically legal advice. They will then refer that person to an immigration consultant. And that's a big deal because it's not always just one person coming for services. It may be their entire family. And attorneys recognize that they often charge somewhere between maybe three and four times as much as an immigration consultant would to simply fill out a form. And quite frankly, attorneys don't want necessarily to spend all of their time translating a form and filling in spaces. Because remember, these are forms that are available on the immigration website. No one is creating a legal document for people. And the other part of that is, is attorneys give classes to immigration consultants. And in California, immigration consultants are not required to receive any specific amount of education. They go out and they seek out these classes on their own, both at the uh, federal immigration's office and with local attorneys who do immigration courses so that they know how to appropriately address those matters. Okay. So that's kind of all the background I wanted to get through. I'm- I think that gives us a good spot to start talking about the bill itself, AB 638, which, again, like I said at the beginning, where more or less would have outlawed this whole industry. I would imagine you don't go to that step without some problems existing. So what were some of the problems that the author was trying to fix with 638? So a few problems. And the the biggest problem is recognizing that we have an immigration crisis on our hands right now and that the consequences of immigration work done poorly or inaccurately can result in someone losing their right to be here. And that's significant. And no one has has said anything otherwise. But the author sought to get rid of immigration consultants saying that they were the problem. We took issue with that. The problem is not immigration consultants. The problem is unlawful people helping people, and I say helping in air quotes, because 
they are preying on populations that don't know where else to go. So for instance, if you are an immigrant and you ask your neighbor, how do I get help on my immigration documents? The neighbor may say, and particularly if you hail from Mexico, you need a notario publico. Well, in Mexico, a notario publico is someone who ha is not a lawyer, but is lawyer-like. Yeah. In California, statute disallows people from holding themselves out as notario publicos, specifically for that reason. They know that if you say you're a notario publico to someone from Mexico, they will think, aha, almost a lawyer, someone who can help me with this. But that's not the case. So you have this entire population of unregistered notario publicos who the public may turn to for advice without knowing that instead they need to seek out a registered and bonded immigration consultant, a lawyer, or this other group of organizations that exist, the accredited providers. Okay. So essentially what we're looking at here with the bill is throw out the whole bushel of apples because a number of them are rotten. In some ways, and you yeah. know, everyone will concede that in any industry, whether it's attorneys or immigration consultants, that you will have some people who are appropriately either members of the bar or bonded and registered who are bad apples. But we don't then, we regulate the industry, right? We don't get rid of it. So how widespread is this notario publico issue within the industry? So we think it's mostly concentrated in bigger cities, but we know it exists in other places in California. And the problem is, is that the notario publico doesn't say to people, hey, I'm not registered or bonded, fair warning, you're taking your chances with me, right? Someone goes to them, they say, I can solve all your immigration problems. 100% guarantee I'll fix that for you. You need to give me $3,000. And people do that because they're desperate and concerned and don't know that they have other options. So I feel like, to some extent, in the, in the sense that this bill would have gotten rid of an entire industry, um, but there are some parallels to SB 10, which could do away with the bail bond industry. I have to imagine that there's discussions that go that go on about the bridges between the issue and doing away with it outright. Like there has to be some middle ground of like, well, there's a fix here, there's a fix there. What were some of the amendments that were brought to the table here that are in that middle ground of like, well, you don't have to do away with immigration consulting entirely. There's fixes here, here, and here that we could do. We talked about a lot of those things. In fact, at every turn, we talked with the author's office and the sponsors of the bill to try and find compromise. That is part of what we do as lobbyists. We don't just outright oppose something. We hope that there's something that could be done that balances the competing public policy interests, and we tried to do that. Those included things like talking to immigration consultants and asking the question, are there some things you think are too risky to do? And is there widespread agreement between immigration consultants about what those are? And when we talked about that, every immigration consultant we talked to said they should never be doing asylum, too risky. Most immigration consultants said there are other things, T visas, U visas, Violence Against Women Act, special immigrant juvenile applications and other things that could or could not be depending on the circumstances, or could also involve criminal matters, which then require a lawyer. And so overall, there was agreement that we could say, let's limit 
immigration consultants to doing the universe of things they do with a prohibition on things like asylum and those other things. Uh, there were other conversations. A couple states I mentioned regulate fees. We talked about that. That's a tough one because attorneys aren't limited on fees, accredited organizations aren't limited on fees, and you need to be really careful when you limit fees because, for instance, I'll use an example of notary fees. There's a statutory fee of $15 per signature per document. But if I'm a notary and I'm coming to you in, from a place two hours away, I can charge you a travel fee. So the question is, how effective is it really to, to do something like that? We had some other suggestions. The Immigration Consultants Act was put into place in its current form with a few tweaks since then in 1985. In two places, it talks about advice. Well, we know that immigration consultants don't give advice, so let's get rid of the word advice, so that's not misleading. Let's change the word immigration consultant. If you're really not a consultant and giving advice, let's call you an immigration document preparer or whatever other name you would like that doesn't imply some advice or consultation. And, you know, I don't know what the right term was, but but the idea is if you outlaw the word immigration consultants, that even the underground notario publicos, if they say, I'm an immigration consultant, people will go, oh no, there is no such thing anymore. You've also described this fight as being kind of like a David versus Goliath type of fight, because it sounds like none of those amendments you brought to the table got put in there, and you were still up against this bill that was just trying to do away with amnesty outright. How does being the clear underdog in the fight kind of affect the way you approach it? Well, it's interesting because we were in we were the underdog in a number of ways. First, there are a number of attorneys in the legislature. A lot of attorneys liked the bill under the theory that only attorneys could do this. And if you're an attorney, you might think that. Now, Aaron and I are not immigration specialists, but we are attorneys. So we know that not any attorney can do immigration as well, right? So from the David and Goliath standpoint, the battle was not only the public perception of only attorneys should do this stuff, but it was also that immigration consultants are generally unrepresented in the legislature. They do not have an association that advocates for them. In this case, the National Notary Association, who writes the bonds for a small number of them, stepped up and said, this isn't something where these people can represent themselves. They don't have a voice, nor do they have a fund to pay this. And they actually paid our firm to represent the immigration consultants. And so we had constituents, immigration consultants, who had never been involved in the political process before, and for whom it was a real eye-opening to understand what it meant to call your senator or assembly member or to go visit with them here or in the district. And so we had all of the uh, coordination of people who don't particularly know how to participate in the process, and also the overwhelming thought of the author and her very powerful allies on the bill that this was something that would be a good thing for people. So we we're constantly fighting this idea of let's protect immigrants. This bill will be good for immigrants. And we had to come in and say, this bill will not be good for immigrants, and here's why. Yeah, I think one of the points I remember reading over was that, you know, this could, you know, in terms of unintended consequences, drive more people to these notario publicos and drive more people into exactly. 
kind of the underground market here where they're at more risk than they would have they gone to a consultant. That's right. If you have $500 that you can spend, and in that case, that may be a quarter of your monthly income, if there are no immigration consultants, you're not going to magically be able to afford an attorney to for $4,000 on a form. You're going to go down. You're going to go down to the notario publico who's going to take your money and not be trackable and not be trained. I think that was the point that was so frustrating for Lexi and I to really get across and something that I pushed when, when I went to offices that were unsure how their bosses were going to vote. The question I would always ask is, where are these people going to go? I mean, if you have attorneys, nonprofits, and now immigration consultants, and the fourth, I guess, being the illegal underground activity that's going on, if you remove one of those four options, they're not, like Lexi said, going to be able to afford an attorney all of a sudden. And so that was the one point I feel like that really resonated with a lot of offices, especially given our current administration. And, you know, we need more help for these people, not less. And that actually, I'm glad you chimed in here because I wanted to talk to you about kind of the experience of working on this bill. Because you were in a legislator's office as a ledge director up until earlier this year and then made the switch over to contract lobbying. I mean, how do those prior experiences help you when you're going in and working on that first bill now on the other side of the desk? Well, I think that this bill was unique because I had the chance to work on this bill in my previous office. That's why Lexi, you know, recruited me to help her with it. And so I had seen how members and staff felt about this bill while I was inside the building last year. But now, you know, this year being a contract lobbyist, you, the first wake up call you get is that you're now on the outside and people don't share as much with you. Uh, for the most part, obviously, we had a few offices that were very helpful, and their staff were very helpful and honest with us. And without them, we couldn't have, you know, did what we did. But just being outside the protected group, and and really, Lexi and I were working this issue nonstop for at least you know a week before the last two days, all day long. So to be working on the same bill, the same conversations, the same offices over and over and over again. Versus if I had been in a staff, in a member's office still as staff, I would have looked at 100 bills. I would have met with 20 you know, plus different people all day about different issues that is the most important issue to them. And but from somebody you know on the inside, it's like, well, this is one of 200 issues. And like you said, with SB10, it's not the only industry that the legislature was trying to do away with. It's not, the, it's not something that the, legislat the legislature does do this. It's not unheard of. And so realizing that you have to go into every office and convince them that this is the most important issue to you and that they should care as much about it as you do and why, you know, the jobs that will be lost, the people that will be affected. But it's hard when the staff are stressed out, they're working, you know, 12 plus hours, they're inundated with bills and people and emails and faxes. So to really get them to look at you and listen to what you say. And then, of course, the follow through is telling their bosses that and passing that message along or, you know, doing that no recommendation, vote recommendation or abstaining and just really seeing, you see from the outside what people you get through to and what strategies work. And obviously this is the first bill that I've really worked on. So maybe after the next couple, then I'll have honed in on my perfect strategy. How helpful was it to have that experience working in the building prior to switching over to the third house? Very helpful. And I think, you know, one of the things that I always start with when I lobby an office is I used to be a staffer, so I know, and I don't, 
I don't know if it matters or not, but I think it's, I try, I say that to try to get, to tell them, I used to be in this club, I know what this club is about, and I know, you know, I've seen this from the other side. I've been side. in your shoes. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and so, and I feel like what I've noticed is they immediately feel more comfortable, they're, you know, more honest, they know, oh, you know how it is. And, and so it, even if I didn't know them before, they're automatically become more familiar with me. And know, knowing the system, the process, though, with Lexi's experience, she knows all of this as well. I think we probably both know the same number of staffers in the building, just different staffers because we worked on different issues. And, um, but then having you know, a few back channels that we can really check in and get you know, more accurate vote counts and members' concerns. So it's different, but I like it. I mean, so Lexi, you were the lead lobbyist on this one. Um, I mean, how much kind of like taking under your wing did you have to do with Erin? Or was she just like able to hit the ground running with kind of the background she had? She was able to hit the ground running. The fact that I had lobbied her office last year when we were working on this and that her legislator at the time had taken an interest in the bill and had actually stayed off a vote at the time when a member stays off a vote, when the rest of their party is largely voting for a bill, that causes questions. So not only was Erin helpful last year in terms of talking to the member that stayed off, but she also fielded all the questions in the following months, why didn't your member vote on that bill? And so she knew the issue really well. What she didn't know, for instance, was all of the players, but that was easy. In fact, we had one day before, uh, at the end of the session, just a week or two ago, where we had some immigration consultants come up and we talked to them specifically about their very focused messaging when they were meeting. And it was so helpful to have Aaron in the room and to say, here's what staffers are going through right now. Here's how you can focus your message so they will hear you. When you see their eyes glaze over, here's how to deal with that. Hugely helpful and she really did hit the ground running and I couldn't have done it without her. Sometimes you need a few more feet and hands involved, and, and she was all that. One last question for you, Erin. I know you mentioned one of the differences being that people are a little more reluctant to share information with you when you're not in the building, but what were some of the other biggest differences you've seen being now on the outside of that kind of core group there working in the building? As Lexi was saying, we had a group of individuals that came to the Capitol, so you know, we're teaching them about the system and the process and staff and especially you know how crazy the last couple of weeks of session are. It's not like a normal week in the legislature. So really having to counsel them and tell them what to expect, answer questions, even just about the legislative process. A lot of people you know, don't know how a bill becomes a law, so I really enjoyed those conversations. I think the one thing that I'm really getting used to as a lobbyist is it, when you work as for a member, you're accountable to that member and you have a smaller group of individuals. And for something like this issue, I was the only person in my office that was working on it. I was the bridge between you know the outside world and the member. And so there are fewer people involved. But with this, we had you know clients that we were accountable to, all the immigration consultants that had come up uh, to lobby the legislature. There are so many more moving parts and I've realized that you could spend hours and hours just checking emails and all the email threads and all the replies and all the answers and and also you know understanding the things that you would you can say to the immigration consultants to the client kind of in our firm in our world and then what is our message to the outside world going to be and to the legislature and lobbying them 
you really do have to wear two different hats. And a lot of the immigration consultants had some really passionate stories and really good reasons why this bill was bad. But Lexi and I, you know, both kind of had to say, that's not going to work so well here. Or, you know, that argument's not going to hold a lot of water in this office. And so really picking our strongest points. And, and yeah, again, just working on one bill, which luckily I really cared about this bill. And I think by the end, you know, Lexi and I both were crying in the hallway when it finally failed. So what I was did, the final vote count? Oh, it was 13 I votes, 17 no votes, and 10 abstentions. And one of the things we had to keep telling the um, immigration consultants that came up is that an abstention is okay, and that's actually good. It's weird how we do our system. You see a yes or a no vote, and laying off a vote or abstaining from a vote does count as a no vote for Lexi and I's purposes. And But when they did the final vote, uh, the, so the Senate does a roll call. Every member has to say you know yes or no or abstain as they go through the alphabet. And... For the, when they did the first roll call, they only had five I votes, and this is out of 40 members. So Lexi and I both looked at each other, and we were very shocked, and we weren't quite sure how to proceed. But it just, you know, the story really resonated with people, and I think the vote count re reflected that. It's important to acknowledge that despite all of the emphasis on us as lobbyists, that it really does take a village for something like this. We had some passionate legislators who spoke up on the floor against the bill. And on our own, we couldn't have done that. But what we did help do was ignite their interest and raise it to that level. Senator Ben Wesso, Senator Kevin DeLeon, and others spoke up and emphasized the issues about why would we put this whole class of people out of business if instead there was something else we could do. And in the end, it really took everyone taking the gloves off and having those conversations about, but there is something more we could do, and that hasn't been adequately explored. And so the voices of everyone collectively were what made the difference. Well, and especially those two voices are pretty powerful voices to have in your corner. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Well, and Senator Delgado, who is a brand new senator, is the first time she had ever spoken on the floor. And so for her to stand up, for, and people noticed that and took notice of that, that this issue meant so much to her that she broke her silence and stood up on something. And it really helped with the final vote count. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts or subscribe to the Cap Impact Podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at CapImpactCA on both of those platforms, or you can check out our website, www.CapImpactCA.com. Thanks for listening to today's show. Talk to you again next week.